Have you ever had a conversation with an animal? I know that you've done it. Maybe you've chatted to your dog about work. Or has your cat listened to your breakup story again? <laughs> I know that I have. And at least some of the time, I'm pretty sure we've understood each other. My dog definitely gets me. Here in the UK, a lot of us really love animals. They're pampered and spoiled. They're even made TikTok famous and they're taught to save lives as well. And if there's one thing that we can't stand, it's animal cruelty. Every year, millions of pounds is donated to charities, helping everything from horses to hedgehogs. But you know, it wasn't always like that. And today, I want to tell you the story of how a man called Humanity Dick, a donkey, and an artist helped to completely change the way that we think about animals. I'm Kaylee Golding, and this is How We Got Here, the podcast from UK Parliament about the people who turn big ideas into the laws that shape our society. And in each episode, we'll take an example of how the tools of democracy were used to change the law. Today, we're hearing from history buffs, legislation experts, and one of the vets who keeps our animals safe as we find out how we got animal welfare. This story is all about how individual MPs and members of the House of Lords can use their position to raise awareness of issues and to suggest changes to the law. I'm also going to tell you how you can find out what they're working on right now. So before I show you how far we've come, let's begin in the 21st century. Let's check in with our first guest, Navaratnam Parthiban. So here's a vet working with farmers to make sure that their livestock is properly cared for. And to help him do that, Navaratnam looks for the five freedoms. The need for a suitable environment, the need for a suitable diet, being able to have space to exhibit normal behaviour, having other animals like them in the same space, not being isolated, especially group animals like cows and pigs or chickens, and to be protected from pain, suffering, injury and disease. This is the gold standard for animal welfare and was set out in the Animal Welfare Act of 2006. Seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? But those freedoms are rooted in a law that is 200 years old and took a lot of effort. Let's go back around 400 years to the 17th century London. The streets were often packed with crowds of rowdy gamblers scrambling to get a glimpse of a public sporting event. And we're not talking about football. A lot of sports involved animals. Well, using the term sport loosely. There was bear baiting, which is where bears were shackled to a wall and dogs set on them. Bull baiting, which was a similar exercise. There was bull running, which was where bulls were released into the town and chased through the town. This is Mike Radford. He's a reader in animal welfare law at the University of Aberdeen. There was dog fighting, cock fighting. These were very popular sports and involved large crowds, a lot of drinking, a lot of gambling, a lot of fun so far as the people who attended them were concerned. I know this sounds barbaric to us in the 21st century, but back then, these sports were common. They were popular with all walks of life, from peasants to royalty, 
and most people accepted them because animals were viewed as lesser than humans. It was said only humans had the capacity to speak, the capacity of language. Only humans had the capacity to reason. A French philosopher said that animals were nothing more than automata. They were just machines. They had no consciousness, no ability to feel pain or to suffer. And therefore, it simply didn't matter how they were treated. So people saw animals as nothing more than just property. They could do whatever they liked with them, but attitudes slowly began to change with one of the main turning points happening in mortuaries. In the 18th century, medical schools started to teach human anatomy. And for that, you need dead bodies or cadavers, which are quite hard to actually come by. So to help their understanding of how we're put together... Surgeons were dissecting both human and animals' cadavers. And then the pieces just started falling into place. They observed that particularly mammals had the same sort of organs as humans and those organs appeared to be doing a similar job. And it was therefore concluded that if we knew that a certain stimulus caused humans pain and animals reacted to the same stimulus in a similar way, you could then draw the conclusion that animals had the capacity to feel pain. This really shook up the conversation about animal welfare. And there's a very famous quotation. The question is not, can they reason? Not, can they talk? But can they suffer? That question began to take hold in popular culture and then by 1751, we see the issue appearing in newspapers and cheap pamphlets. Here's Mike Radford again. In the middle of the 18th century, the famous cartoonist William Hogarth produced a set of four cartoons entitled The Four Stages of Cruelty. William Hogarth was famous for his depiction of moral depravity in 18th century London. He just wanted to shock people into thinking differently and these cartoons are pretty graphic. They're actually heartbreaking. So the first drawing shows a boy called Tom and he's penetrating a dog with an arrow and other people are just around abusing other creatures. And then in the second image, Tom is older and he's even more cruel He's overworked and mistreated his horse to the point that its leg breaks. And then he's even attacking the poor animal on the street. And then we move on to the third image. Tom has progressed to theft and the murder of his pregnant lover. He meets his end in the fourth and final cartoon, where he's actually hanged, and the moral of the story is very clear. They suggest that cruelty to animals leads to degeneration and ends up with people being cruel to other people. Inspired by this change in public thinking, a member of the House of Lords, Lord Erskine, tried to secure legal protection for animals in 1809, but his bill didn't successfully change the law. Nothing happens for another 10 or so years. And that's when an MP representing County Galway called Richard Martin got involved and things began to change. Richard Martin was so concerned about the treatment of animals that King George IV gave him the name Humanity Dick. 
The two things which concerned Richard Martin were, first of all, the general treatment of horses and ponies and donkeys and mules, which, of course, were ubiquitous in the country, but particularly ubiquitous in London for transport. And the other issue was the treatment of cattle and other agricultural animals being driven to Smithfield Market in London for slaughter. There were only two ways to get meat to London. Either animals were slaughtered where they were reared, the meat was salted, put into barrels, put onto carts and taken to London. That was a hugely inefficient and difficult way of transporting meat because of the state of the roads at the time. Plus, there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm for salted meat. So the only alternative before refrigeration was available was to take the animals to London alive by walking them there and killing them once they got there. They were led from all over the UK, walking hundreds of miles to be slaughtered. It really was a grim sight. There are contemporary reports of these animals being walked miles with broken legs and having been beaten and thrashed and generally abused on the journey. And the animals arrived at the market in horrific condition. It was noisy, it was dirty, it was scruffy. It must have been a really frightening place for these animals. Richard Martin decided that the animals needed legal protection. So in 1821, he introduced a private member's bill into the House of Commons. Now, I'm going to pause for a minute for a bit of an explanation. Because Richard Martin's private member's bill is absolutely crucial in the story of how we got animal rights. And it's actually a process that is still used a lot today. But parliamentary processes can be confusing, so to help me understand what a private member's bill is, I called in for some help. This is Adam Mello's facer, clerk of private member's bills in the House of Commons. I'll let him explain exactly what a private member's bill is. A private member's bill is a proposal for a new law from an MP who's not a government minister, so from a, a backbench MP. Most members of Parliament in the House of Lords and the House of Commons are known as backbenchers. Now, it sounds a little bit fancy, but all it means is that they sit in the benches at the back of their chamber because they don't have a role in government. So they don't have a job like the Minister for Health or something like that. Backbenchers from the House of Lords or the House of Commons can put forward private members' bills. And they're just a great way for an individual member to put forward an idea for a new law. And they've really had a huge impact on our daily lives. The Abortion Act 1967, which legalised abortion. The Sexual Offences Act 1967, which legalised homosexual sex between men. The Divorce Reform Act 1969, which does exactly as it says on the tin. And the same with the Murder Abolition of Death Penalty Act 1965. These were all huge social reforms which really modernised the whole country. And those were all introduced as private members' bills. Ideas for these bills can come from anywhere, from anyone who wants to see a change. 
and they'll often come from members of the public who can take an idea to their MP or a member of the Lords to put forward. There are different ways that these backbench MPs can introduce a private member's bill and members of the House of Lords can get them started too. In both houses, one of the main ways is to put yourself forward for an annual ballot. Adam is going to explain this a little bit more. The first route and the best one is to bring a private member's bill in as a ballot bill, being one of those 20 lucky members who are drawn out of the raffle at the beginning of a session. So why does Adam say 20 lucky members? Well, there's only one ballot a year and around 500 backbenchers put their name into the hat and hope that they're given a slot to give a speech making a case for their new law to the House of Commons. The process is very similar in the House of Lords. At the beginning of a new session of Parliament, members can submit the title of their proposed bill and then 25 are selected from the ballot. And the ballot is a public event, so campaigners and government will try and persuade the ballot winners to champion all kinds of new law ideas. If you get a good place in the ballot, you get precious time to kick off your bill in the chamber. And even if you don't end up changing the law, it can be an incredible boost for public awareness. So maybe if we bring it back to 1809, when Lord Erskine tried to make animal welfare a law, maybe we shouldn't see it as a failure that it didn't get passed. So using the same process that is still in place today, Richard Martin presented his private member's bill back in 1821. But despite the silly changes in public opinion, he just still couldn't get enough support in the House of Commons and it didn't pass. That's really not unusual for modern private members' bills. He was trying to advance a campaign. He would have got lots of attention. I'm sure it would have been kind of covered widely in the news and he would have raised kind of public interest and parliamentary interest in what then was this new issue of of animal welfare. So it's not all that bad then. Humanity Dick's bill might have failed for the first time, but now both Houses of Parliament have debated the issue of animal welfare. So at least it's getting airtime and we know this because Parliament keeps really detailed notes of everything that happened through their official record. It's called Hansard and you can even look it up online yourself and you can search through hundreds of years of parliamentary history right up to what happened today. So if you want to check that out, then make sure you look in the show notes for the link. Adam looked into the minutes of Richard Martin's bill from the House of Commons 200 years ago and he discovered that the bill actually did attract a lot of public attention. There were lots of petitions from ordinary people in various different parts of the country encouraging the House to pass this law. There were lots of petitions presented to the House of Commons saying that residents of Peckham had uh, submitted a petition encouraging the House to pass the cattle bill. Petitions serve a similar purpose nowadays. In the modern system, if there are 100,000 signatures on an e-petition, then we'd expect a debate in the House of Commons on that petition. So a petition can raise a profile of an issue. It can give an impression of the depth and breadth of public support. We really hope that you are enjoying this podcast and would love to know more about what you really think. If you could spare a minute, click the link in the show notes to do a quick survey about you and what you would like to hear more of. It will really help us out so we can make sure we are making better podcasts for you. 
So Richard Martin knew he was gathering public support and he was determined to try again. He went through the same process, reintroduced his bill the following year and starts to make progress. It doesn't matter how it begins. The process of making a law is always the same and has remained pretty much unchanged since Richard Martin's day. Bills must be debated in detail by both houses until everyone agrees. During these debates, members have a chance to vote on amendments or changes to the bill, and it can go back and forth between the houses until everyone is happy. In practice, private members' bills don't usually get allocated enough time for lots of amendments, so the pressure is on members to get support for their bill and to get it right the first time. This time, Richard Martin's bill was successful, and it made history. Let's go back to the legal historian, Mike Radford. It was the first piece of national legislation anywhere in the modern world enacted specifically for the protection of animals. And what it did was it made it an offence for anybody, the owner or anybody else, wantonly, that's deliberately, and cruelly to beat, abuse or ill-treat any horse, mare, gelding, mule, ass, ox, cow, heifer, steer, sheep or other cattle. Under Martin's Act, the minimum sanction was a fine of at least 10 shillings and the maximum fine was £5. Now, 10 shillings doesn't sound very much. It's 50 pence in new money. But in 1822, 5 shillings was a significant amount of money. But then there was still a problem because there was no one to enforce this new law. Back in 1822, the Met Police didn't exist and criminal law was actually enforced by the victim themselves. Now, cows can hardly bring cases against their owners. So Martin had a serious problem on his hands. So what Martin does is he starts going down to Smithfield Market himself. And in London's famous meat market, he finds people who are breaking his new law. The drovers, who were coming from all over the country bringing these animals, were largely illiterate. There was no point in confronting them with a copy of the legislation because they couldn't read it. So he takes them to court because Humanity Dick knew how to get the news to spread. In the knowledge that... Those drovers who were prosecuted would go back to the pubs, tell their mates, and word would get around. Martin took many different people to court, but one of the first animals to allegedly receive justice was a donkey, and history was captured in a painting called The Trial of Bill Burns. Now, this painting is quite different because there's a donkey in the middle of a courtroom, everyone's around, and the donkey's just getting justice. So the story is that Richard Martin insisted on the donkey being brought into court and presented before the magistrates as evidence. This was a donkey which was used in London for moving goods around and it had been overloaded, it was exhausted, it had been beaten. It's quite sad, actually, because the donkey in the print is really thin, it looks terrified, it's covered in cuts and blood, and then the onlookers just seem amused at the sight. They're mocking the donkey and its lawyer, Humanity Dick, as well. 
the significance of that picture is twofold. First of all, it conveys the message that animals that have been ill-treated could now be used in evidence. And secondly, at a time when a very significant proportion of the population remained illiterate, in exactly the same way as Hogarth, a hundred years before, had used his cartoons to convey a message, so this picture conveys a message. It demonstrates that the law is there now to protect animals from cruel treatment. And therefore, it's not just a historical curiosity. At the time, it could have been used as a very important means of education and alerting people to the fact that the law now extended to the protection of animals. Richard Martin continued to bring prosecutions against people, but soon the work became too much for him. So he hired an inspector, put a uniform on him so he would stand out and got him to patrol the market. Again, the work became too much. So many people were breaking the law and Martin and his inspector just couldn't stay on top of it all. A group of social reformers, including Richard Martin, including William Wilberforce, the famous anti-slavery campaigner, gathered in a coffee house, Old Slaughter's Coffee House in St Martin's Lane in London and agreed to form an organisation to take this workload off Richard Martin. The organisation was to be called the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Also known as the SBCA. The SBCA was successful, but it struggled a lot during its first decade. But in 1835, it had a stroke of luck. The SBCA persuaded a young woman to become a patron. She was only 16 years old, but she agreed. And you may wonder, what was the reason, what was the attraction of a 16-year-old woman becoming patron? If I tell you her name was Victoria, then it becomes clear. So in 1835, Princess Victoria agrees to become patron of the SPCA. In 1837, she becomes queen. And in 1840, Queen Victoria granted the SPCA the Royal Charter and it became the RSPCA, which gave the fight for animal welfare a lot of respectability. So with a few gory cartoons and a very determined MP, a poor donkey and a few big efforts to pass a private member's bill, the fate of animals in the UK was forever changed. And then two centuries later, the conversation about our relationship with animals is still evolving. On top of the legislation, there's a big incentive for farmers to maintain high standards. And that comes from you every time you shop for your food. This is something that the farm vet Navratnam knows all about. Supermarkets hold a huge amount of power in the whole food chain. 
And so the supermarkets will look at consumers and will think, well, consumers want high animal welfare in the food they eat. And also high animal welfare also makes the food safer. You know, again, we talk about diseases and things like that. If an animal's well kept and it's got high welfare, it's going to have less disease and so they have a safer product for humans to eat. So the supermarkets put restrictions and they put rules for farmers. If farmers don't hold it up, A, they're not going to be able to sell their stock. B, they will go bankrupt eventually. And C, that they will then lose markets and therefore, you know, it's not in their interest to not maintain welfare. But end of the day, they're humans. And, you know, if we feel for welfare, farmers are the same. So there you have it. We didn't always treat animals well because it's the right thing to do. A law came first and then our love came after. Listen to the rest of this series to find out how one woman's fight to see her children changed women's marriage rights forever, what led to us voting in secret, and why we now have access to the countryside. I'm Kaylee Golden. Thanks for listening to How We Got Here. Thanks also to Navratnam Parthiban, Mike Radford, and Adam Mellows Facer for sharing their expert knowledge today. For more information about anything we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes or go to parliament.uk forward slash how we got here. You can follow UK Parliament, the House of Lords or the House of Commons across your socials to keep up to date with what's going on. This was a Story Things production for UK Parliament. The producer was Freya Hellier and the writer was Mira Kumar.